Our scripture reading recounts the first Easter. It is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Women, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not there with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, 
his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. The word of the Lord. So we read, or I'm going to read again, those first, that first part of verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So the question is very simple. What was she going to the tomb for? What was she going looking for? What was she hoping to find there, right? Well, what she wanted to do was to anoint the body of Jesus, prepare it for a proper burial. You see, Jesus was Mary Magdalene's rabbi, like her priest or minister. He was also a mentor who had helped her out in her life. And Jesus was a good friend of Mary's. And so she goes to the tomb early that morning to do the cultural and religiously appropriate thing to do. The cultural and religiously appropriate thing to do. And that's why many of us are here on Easter. Easter is one of the culturally religious times you go to church. But I, I will have to say, when I was a kid, I didn't really love the Easter thing. I, I much preferred a Christmas service. The carols were better, and there was always better gifts surrounding Christmas than Easter. So why do we celebrate Easter anyhow, right? The majority of Americans still self-identify as Christians. The majority of Americans say, I'm a Christian. And yet, according to a Barna research in 2010, the majority of Americans do not actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. So why do we come? Well, I think in a lot of ways inside of our heads, we romanticize Easter. It ties in our heads to spring. You know, the tulips are popping up, the grass is turning greener. You want to go out on Easter so you can wear your, your lily dress, your your, your bright pastels. It's that one chance to start to break into the, the khakis. And spring comes with a lot of energy, too. It's the time when you want to get outside. And I saw this most recently while walking my dog. Now, I, if you walk a dog in the winter, I, and it's 20 degrees out, I'm most likely to see one other person. There's a gentleman a, a row over, a row of houses over from ours, and he's always out walking his dog. When it's 20 degrees, I see that guy only. But this week, when it was about 75, I saw more dogs than I've ever seen in Vienna. It was like everyone has an underground kennel and they're bringing their dogs out. I went with some friends to an outdoor restaurant and it was packed with dogs and a few people there too. People get this energy, this vibrancy, it's Easter, it's spring, let's go out. Easter, because it comes at the springtime, can be confused in our heads as if it's only about new growth. As if, you know, Jesus died on the cross, that's wintry, and then Easter comes. We spiritualize Easter. Easter's about being positive, overcoming the bad stuff in life, new beginnings, Phoenix rising. But spiritualizing Easter 
doesn't fit with John 20 that we just read. It doesn't fit with all the confusion, the fear, the doubts. And it doesn't fit with a guy with holes in his hands whom his friends believe is the risen son of God. What is Jesus revealing? What is Mary seeking? Later that that day, after Peter and John run to the tomb themselves, Mary is by herself and she's weeping. And Jesus shows up. And just like Jesus, he's compassionate. Why are you weeping? Come here. And then he asks a very penetrating question that I don't want us to skip, skip over. He says to Mary, whom are you seeking? Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, whom are you seeking? As if he doesn't know. He knows she's looking for him. But she doesn't realize at what level she should be looking for him. As devoted as Mary Magdalene was to Jesus, she was one of his disciples for several years. Her estimation of him was too small. She's looking for Jesus' dead body to anoint it, to do the cultural and religious thing. She's still thinking of Jesus as a good teacher, and her friend. Jesus asks her, whom are you seeking? And he's inviting her to a much bigger place for him in her life. And he does the same with each of us. Whom are you seeking is actually a good question for any of us. And here's what I would say. If we went around and just watched somebody's life over the next year, I would say with any human being, anybody in America, you would say that the way we live indicates that we are all seeking something. We live searching for meaning and purpose and identity to be loved. We're trying to find ourselves and our place in this world. But whom do you turn to define that? All of us, Every single person, whether you identify as a Christian or agnostic, as an atheist, and you're just dragged here today, all of us have something that's ultimate in our lives. Our priorities, our values circle around and are built on something. There's something we turn to to give us a sense of purpose, of identity. Could be your career success, the love of a spouse, the happiness of your kids. Good things that become ultimate things that really are our functional saviors, our true sources of worship. You know, when you define what a God is, I would say even if you think of yourself as agnostic or atheistic, everyone has a God. Something sits on the throne of our hearts. Something is ultimate to us. So if it's not Jesus, why do we go to church? Why do we even call ourselves Christians? I think for many of us, the idea of church or being a Christian is like part of a balanced life. There was an ad campaign back in the 80s that Captain Crunch did where they said, Captain Crunch is part of a balanced breakfast. And you knew that if you ate an apple, two bananas, a bunch of grapes, some wheat toast, a glass of orange juice, some milk, 
and Captain Crunch, you had a balanced breakfast. I think many of us think about church and Christianity in this way. That's part of a balanced lifestyle. You know, I've got my exercise, my eating routines, my family time, my career, and a little bit of church over here. Part of a balanced life. It's the grapes so I can eat the Captain Crunch. My kids need some morals, a little tradition. I like a little religiousness to balance out the other stuff I do. But the Christian claim is this. Jesus died for your sins. He has risen physically, really alive. And he's the one you're actually seeking. He's the one who will fill your heart's desires. Jesus' first disciples had as much trouble believing it as many of us do. We go on to read that later that night in the upper room, the disciples are there hiding in fear. Hiding in fear because they're afraid the religious leaders and authorities are going to come and arrest them too, just like they did to Jesus a few days earlier. They're hiding in fear. Jesus appears, but Thomas is not there with them. So later on, Thomas comes and they say, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's risen. He was here. And Thomas says, no way. Unless I, unless I see, unless I put my fingers, unless I touch, unless I can hold on to him and I know it's actually Jesus because the, the marks are there from his crucifixion, I will not believe. It's so great that this is included in the Bible, by the way. It is so great that Thomas's confusion and doubts are recorded. Because this resonates with many of us. We need evidence. We need proof. We're not going to buy into that blind, naive faith. But Thomas begs of us, what, what gets in the way for you? What makes it difficult for you to put your trust in Jesus? And here's what I would say. Don't settle don't settle for coming to conclusions about Christianity because you grew up going to church. Don't settle because you've seen a movie, the one where Jesus has blue eyes and highlights and has a British accent. Jesus doesn't have blue eyes, blonde hair, or a British accent. Well, maybe he had a British accent, but... Don't draw your conclusions even based on Christians you know. Well, it depends on who the Christians are. You can be misled and come to conclusions abruptly. Don't do that. Instead, look for yourself. Do what Thomas did. Say, I want to see for myself. Read a gospel. The gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the recording of who Jesus was and what he did. Read one all the way through in one sitting. The gospel of Mark will take you about 45 minutes. The gospel of John, about an hour and a half. Read it through and see for yourself. Today we're giving out a few books, The Case for Easter, um, and a couple of versions of the story of Jesus. Take one of those home with you. Read it. There are books out there. Examine for yourself. Come back here on another Sunday, not because the preaching is great, but we are going to be looking over the next couple of weeks at the beginning of, of the whole faith narrative. We're going to do a sermon series starting in two weeks called Beginning with Christ. And look, what does it mean to be a Christian for the next eight weeks after that? Here's what I would remind you. 
based on the Thomas narrative, his questions and doubts, there is a place for your questions, for your doubts and your skepticism in Christianity. Jesus does not slam Mary Magdalene or Thomas. Basically, he says to them, come, you see, you decide for yourself who you think I am. This is the way Christianity has always been. Luke Ferry, who's a French philosopher and atheist, which probably goes without saying, wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. And in that, he traces the history of philosophical thought from the Greek and Romans to Christianity to modern Enlightenment humanism and into the worlds of philosophy that have existed today, postmodernism. In that, he says this about Christianity. Christianity was the first time that individual worth and choice were elevated. And this was completely radical. Because every person had to believe. It wasn't just your ethnicity or your race. It wasn't just your nationality. It wasn't just you bought into religion because of who you were born to be. You had to decide what to do with Jesus. This elevated individuality and reflection and, re and decision. And as a result, where did the Enlightenment happen? Where did the scientific revolution happen? In the West. Undergirded a thousand years, 1500 years earlier by a philosophy that said you are able to ask questions, to seek for yourself. And over the past 300 years since the Enlightenment, Christianity has been dealt with intense skeptical investigation and valid criticism, all of which Jesus would have invited. I would argue that Christianity and the Bible has been examined at the highest levels of academia more than any other worldview or religion ever, hands down. The Gospel of John, we just read chapter 20. It's about five to 700 words, about the size of like a high school essay. I just did a quick research. In the past 30 years, in the past 30 years alone, there have been over 300 academic scholarly papers and dissertations written on John 20 alone, many of which are trying to disprove it. That's one chapter in the Bible. Don't just believe because it's the cultural thing to do. Don't even just believe because it's relevant or you say, well, it works for me. The only reason to believe in Christianity is because it's true. And if it's not true, none of us should believe it. So let's take the empty tomb. Is it a fairy tale? Fairy tale or is it true? Is there evidence? If you've been to an Easter sermon, you've probably heard this before, but I'm going to go through it anyhow. Some of the evidence in favor of the validity and historicity of the empty tomb indicating that Jesus actually rose bodily and physically from the dead include, one, the presence of women as the first eyewitnesses, and Mary Magdalene in John 20 in particular. It's widely known by all scholars, regardless of whether they believe in Christianity or not, that a woman's testimony was not admissible in Roman or Jewish courts. What they said did not matter. They were not considered whole individual persons. So if you were going to record a narrative that seemed fantastic, you would never have said the first eyewitnesses were women. 
let alone Mary Magdalene, who was widely known to have been demon-possessed and a prostitute. This would be the equivalent today of basing the entirety of a religion on the eyewitness accounts of two or three preschoolers. They come back from the playground, Jesus rose from the dead, we saw it. All right, let's write it down, base a religion on it. You would not do that unless it actually happened. It does not advance your case. A second evidence for it is the inclusion of the fear of the disciples and Thomas's very doubts. See, every other ancient history, when trying to craft a picture of the leader and his followers, always painted it in a positive light. Christianity and the descriptions around Jesus' followers are basically the first ones to record the negative connotations of fear, of doubt, of confusion, of failure. Why? There's no reason to do it in that ancient world unless it actually happened. D.A. Carson, one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world, said this in conclusion, that Thomas is proof of historicity. Are we to think Are we to think that the church made up a story that pictures one of the 12 as incredulous to the point of unreasonable obstinacy? Maybe. Maybe. I think we could also make this argument, maybe, maybe, Christian writers just made up the story. Including the doubts and the women in order to make it look more realistic. But that's a genre called a historical fiction based on novels which didn't exist for another 1,700 years. So either the New Testament writers were 1,700 years earlier than everyone else in this groundbreaking idea of fiction that's described realistically, or they're doing what would have been normal to a first century recorder of history, writing down what actually happened according to eyewitnesses. N.T. Wright, who is also a world-renowned scholar, a British man who is an expert in anthropology, sociology, ancient languages, and all the ancient writings, has a 700-page book on the resurrection that catalogs everything that can be written about it and compares it to all the other ancient documents. And this is his conclusion. The ruling hypothesis in much New Testament study in skeptical New Testament study, is that the resurrection narratives were written as allegories. They didn't actually happen. But this hypothesis fails at the levels of literature, history, and theology. The gospel writer believes these things happened. In other words, you would never actually look at any other historical document or literature of the ancient world and read it the same way we skeptically read the New Testament. He goes on to say in another book, the empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus are as well established as any ancient historical data could expect to be. And they are the only possible explanation for the stories and beliefs that grew up so quickly among Jesus' followers. You see, the final evidence that I'm going to give today for why the resurrection is the most likely answer to the empty tomb and the recordings we have in the New Testament is the spread of Christianity over the couple hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Every one of these disciples who was fearfully hiding out 
goes about spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, telling them that God has come, he dies for your sins, and he's risen again. And they went to India, and they went to the Ukraine, and they went to Rome, and they went to North Africa, and all of them were telling people these things, and almost all of them died horrific deaths, claiming the same thing to be true. They were beaten, they were burned alive, they were flayed, they were crucified. And they would not back down from this claim that Jesus died and rose again. Nobody gets crucified for a nice moral teaching. You get crucified for saying something that is seditious, like the God of the universe has come and is risen and he's the true king, not you. And you would think that if it wasn't actually true, at least one of them would have backed out. You can almost imagine Peter right before he is about to be crucified. He knows what it looks like. He knows how it feels. Just before they're going to drive the nails into his own hands and feet. Hey guys, hey guys, whoa, bad joke here, sorry. The gig's up. It was all a joke, all a hoax. No rising from the dead. Jesus is dead, buried. We just stuck his body underground. But they all die. Horrible deaths because they believe it's true. I can't prove that Jesus rose, but the evidence points in that direction. The evidence points in that direction. And it demands a response if it is true. Later, eight days later, Jesus appears again. And this time, Thomas is there. Jesus says to Thomas, go ahead, put your hands here, touch me, see Don't be disbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. A Jewish man would never say this about any other human. They would not say this about the best rabbi any more than you or I would say it about our own kids. Yes, we love our kids, we adore our kids, but they're not our savior and our God. In Vienna, they might be. It's a bad example. Okay, Thomas worships Jesus. That's what he does. He calls him my creator, my God, and my savior, the one before whom I'm gonna submit my entire life. And a couple of weeks later, Peter, who had also denied Jesus and was hiding in fear, stands before the same religious leaders who had crucified Jesus, and he says to them, there is salvation in no one else. There is one name under heaven whereby we will be saved, and it's Jesus. Where does that boldness come from? He's standing on the grounds of the very claims of Jesus himself. Jesus, before he was crucified, in the weeks before he was crucified, said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot get away with saying he was a mere teacher, somebody who inspires us, a little religion on the side. C.S. Lewis insightfully put it this way, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We cannot settle for a romanticized, spiritualized Easter, for religion as a part of our daily intake. Jesus can't be the inspiring moral teacher who's just helpful to help me get along. He is either the Lord and Savior and our whole life submits to him or something else is our God. And this is what Jesus went around confronting and challenging with every person he met. Jesus was forgiving and compassionate and opened his arms to everyone and every one of them he challenged He confronted their other gods. To Nicodemus, the religious leader, who found his identity and his position and status, Jesus challenged his position and status. To the woman at the well, Jesus challenged her her looking to men and sexuality to find her identity. To the disciples themselves, he said, leave your family and your career. Give that up to follow me. And in one set of episodes that bounce on either side of each other, Jesus talks to a rich ruler who is a wealthy and very, very good man, just like every one of us, wealthy and very good. And he says, drop all of your money and come follow me, and he cannot do it. And then a little bit later, he sees Zacchaeus, who is wealthy and very, very bad, and Jesus says, I'm coming to meet you, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus drops all of his money for Jesus. See, With Jesus, it's not are you good or are you bad. It's who or what is your God and will you let go of it for me? We can't have a bit of Jesus. He occupies the throne of our life or we can have none of him. So Jesus asks Mary, just as he asks all of us, whom are you seeking? With our time, our money, our energy, our emotions, our thoughts, we all are crying out with our lives and our thoughts and our decisions, my Lord and my God, to something. What about you? Whom are you seeking? Let's pray. God, I thank you that there is room for doubt and skepticism and question. I pray that you would occupy our thoughts. Give us a willingness to leave here and look further, to go into the tomb ourselves, to touch Jesus ourselves, to examine for ourselves, and give us a willingness to surrender the gods of our heart for the one who is risen, in whose name we pray, amen.